Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. The news continues, so let's hand it over to Laura Coates and CNN Tonight. Thank you, John, so much. Nice to see you. And you're right, I am Laura Coates, and this is CNN Tonight. As you know... Elections have consequences. I mean, we should all know that very well at this point. You hear it all the time. They can have impact on who sits on the highest court in the land, who then can go on, as you know, to make very consequential decisions that will impact our elections, the same that have consequences. That's exactly what just happened with a new controversial Supreme Court ruling one that delivers yet another, and this time in a major blow, to the voting rights of minorities in Alabama and arguably elsewhere. We're going to take a deep dive into why exactly that is the case tonight and, frankly, how it could impact the midterm elections that are exactly nine months from today. SCOTUS has now chosen to restore Alabama's gerrymandered GOP-drawn congressional map that a lower court already blocked last month, saying that it would hurt black voters. The vote there was five to four, with Chief Justice John Roberts joining the three liberal justices in dissent. So why does this map matter so much, and why was it even initially blocked is the good question. Well, a three-judge U.S. District Court ruled that it likely violated Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act because the map, well, it only includes one district out of seven where black voters will have the majority. Yet black voters, well, they make up more than a fourth of Alabama's population. So there's an obvious imbalance in just that demographic. So the lower court ordered that a new map with a second, at least, majority black district be drawn, which could have led to Democrats gaining another seat in the House this fall. But that's not happening here now because the conservative majority of the Supreme Court, well, they froze the ruling. Now, why would they do that? Well, Justices Kavanaugh and Justice Alito are arguing that the lower court's order for a new map Well, it just came just too close to the 2022 election cycle. Too close? Wow, absurd. I mean, the idea of not correcting the area and the issue prior to elections? Well, Liberal Justice Elena Kagan, who argues there's plenty of time, by the way, is reiterating that stance. I mean, the primary in Alabama, it's not tomorrow or or next week or even next month. It's not until late May. Short in her dissent, of course, enjoined by Justices Breyer and Sotomayor that her court's decision, quote, does a disservice to the district court, which meticulously applied this court's longstanding voting rights precedent. And most of all, it does a disservice to black Alabamians who, under that precedent, have had their electoral power diminished. 
Justice Kagan also pointed out that the court shouldn't even be issuing such an order on its so-called shadow docket, which, of course, you know, is this emergency docket that doesn't have the benefit of getting full briefing, of having oral arguments. And some would argue the transparency needed to understand the nature of the court's decision. So since the merits of this case won't be taken up until well now later this year, that means the midterm elections in Alabama, they'll be held on maps that could ultimately be ruled illegal after the voting has already been done. And what's the expectation that they'll somehow reverse the election based on the maps? No, what will be and will obviously stand. And this isn't just an Alabama issue, by the way. You know, gerrymandering has been particularly rampant this election cycle in states like Texas and North Carolina and Ohio. You know, the DOJ is actually suing Texas over its map, arguing Republican lawmakers didn't draw enough majority Latino and black districts there, denying minorities' rights to vote on account of their race. And be fair, what about Democrats, you ask? Well, yes. They've also drawn themselves some aggressive maps in states like Illinois and New York. Some are arguing, of course, that that's maybe partisan gerrymandering. And while problematic, but often under a different standard because one's political affiliation might be viewed as pretextual for other areas, well, how do you figure out whether you should do any of the type of gerrymandering as opposed to just an approach to the one person, one vote standard we're supposed to have? But what's happening in Alabama is noted as being a kind of racial gerrymandering, and that's unconstitutional under the standards that we know, well, at least for now. You know, only 31 states have finished even redrawing their congressional lines in advance of the midterms. And if you're doing their, your math, 31 out of 50 is not the whole kit and caboodle that needs to happen to ensure that everything will be on the up and up and on par with how we want it to be by the time people cast a ballot. I mean, due to population changes in the 2020 census, of course, this is all taking place, the redrawing of maps to be more in line with the accurate data of the actual populations. And the concern is that the new Supreme Court ruling could actually greenlight other states to try to manipulate the maps in ways that would put voters of color at a disadvantage. And how often have we seen this happen over the, well, the course of even recent history, let alone even prior to and since 1965? So the question, of course, is, and we'll talk about it, what's the fix now? What's the fix now that two voting rights bills are dead on arrival in the Senate? I want to bring in two experts on this to carry on the conversation. Let's turn to Rick Hassan, professor of law at UC Irvine and co-editor of the Election Law Journal. He's also the author of the new book, Cheap Speech, How Disinformation Poisons Our Politics, which comes out next month, everyone. And also with me, Derek Johnson, president of the NAACP. Gentlemen, I'm very glad you're here and can't wait to talk to you about this. You know, I was a voting attorney in the Civil Rights Division of DOJ, and I can tell you, I can't believe that here we are finding ourselves time and time again in a world that feels a lot more like perhaps 1964 than 2022. Let me begin with you, Rick, here on this point, because 
I want you to help people understand. People have heard the news. They've heard about what gerrymandering is and what the Alabama map. Help us to go deeper and contextualize why this is so significant that this is even being looked at on a shadow docket, for example. What do you say, Rick? Well, you know, the first thing to note is that back in 2013, the Supreme Court killed a key part of the Voting Rights Act called Section 5 that would have required Alabama to go to the Department of Justice and show that their map wouldn't make minority voters worse off. That's gone, but we were told in that case, Shelby County versus Holder, that don't worry, there's Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act, a part of the Voting Rights Act that was amended in 1982 that gives minority voters the same opportunities as other voters to participate in the political process and to elect representatives of their choice. What Chief Justice Roberts said in his opinion yesterday, in his partial dissent, was if you apply the existing standards, Alabama's got to get that second district. So he dissented from the idea that we're going to put this on hold now, but he agreed with the other five conservatives. Let's rethink this whole thing. And that's the most ominous thing. The court may fundamentally rework what Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act means and really weaken it so that it doesn't really protect minority voters anymore. And you're right to think it's kind of a return back to the period before uh, the Voting Rights Act in 1982 was amended and almost back to 1965 when there was really significant protection for minority voters put in place. And Derek, I want you to to weigh in here because it's so important to think about just that dynamic of why the Voting Rights Act of 1965 was even put into place, let alone the the gutting of Section 5 and the rendering anemic, frankly, of Section 2, even being able to challenge laws on the back end. You have here a Supreme Court that's saying, look, we are not going to really deal with this issue. It's too close in time. We'll deal with it later after whatever takes place already transpires. What do you say about the idea of having that delay and not realizing the necessity to weigh in prior to that map going into effect, Derek? Well, I think it's disingenuous of the Supreme Court to take that posture. In effect, they're saying we're going to turn a blind eye to vote suppression in Alabama, particularly against African-American voters. Uh, what is well documented that Alabama has a long history of racial black voting, uh, seeking to suppress the black vote, and in many ways try and, and eliminate the ability of African Americans in that state to elect candidates of their choice. And in this situation, the Supreme Court is simply turning a blind eye. We must pass voting right protections in the Senate. The Senate must do their job. Uh, we're going to continue to see this repeat itself over and over if, in fact, uh, members of the of, of the Senate uh, uh, don't develop courage and stand up and protect our Constitution and protect the right to vote. You know, on that notion, you mentioned the idea of, of almost this, this notion of a post-racial world that was alluded to prior when the Section 5 was gutted and the idea of um, turning a blind eye. Well, Rick, Republicans would argue, and let's play devil's advocate here in this position, that, look, we, we should have racial, race-blind mapping here. You know, you shouldn't be taking into consideration the race. Certainly there is racial block voting, of course, as Derek talked about, the idea of having enough concentration of power to elect a candidate of your choice, not having that voting strength diluted, um, and never, ever being guaranteed to vote for the winner, but having the opportunity to do so. What do you say to the argument that says... If you don't want race to infect our voting and election systems, then why would you draw a majority black district in the first place? 
Yeah, that's a great question, but I, I would put it this way. You mentioned racially polarized voting. Let's talk about what that means. It means that the white majority in Alabama, if given the chance to vote, will consistently defeat the choice of African-American voters in Alabama. So if you just had voting at large where everybody could vote for every congressional candidate, you'd have an all-white delegation. I mean, we're almost there, but you'd have that in the legislature too. The, what Congress did in 1982 when it amended Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act was say, look, we want to assure that when minority voters are concentrated in a particular area and they're large enough that they could have a candidate of their choice represent them, they should have that same opportunity. I would love for us to live in a race-blind society where Alabama voters were not choosing their candidates on the basis of race, but that's not the reality today. And the reality today is if we want to assure minority representation, and if the Supreme Court's going to follow what Congress said, it's got to create, continue to create these districts in order to assure that minority voters get a fair share of representation in a place like Alabama. And Derek, of course, I'll give you the last word on this because you, with the work you do with the NAACP, you recognize the reality and the impact of race in, frankly, every facet of our systems in America. Um, when you think about this, are you concerned about the blueprint effect of something like this now that other jurisdictions may say, hey, the Supreme Court's not going to weigh in. It's too close to an election. Maybe we should now turn out and crank out the remaining less than 20 maps that need to be done to eliminate competitive seats. Is that a concern you should think about? There's a huge concern, particularly for the southern states. Redistricting is no longer done by hand with an added machine. You can produce maps, of multiple maps, within a matter of, of hours. Uh, I'm a demographer. The GIS systems are so advanced, it, it doesn't take a long time. In fact, the Supreme Court could have said, you know, the, the, the primary is coming up. We're going to tell you, Alabama, to produce alternative maps in the next two weeks. Alabama could have produced multiple maps that would have both met the criteria to ensure African-Americans will have an opportunity to elect candidates of their choice, comply with Section 2, and to protect our democracy. But they chose to use a false argument to say, well, it's too close to an election, when in fact it's not too close to elections. Finally, states like Alabama, they have always participated in racial black voting. Uh, racial black voters. African-Americans will vote for white candidates, but white voters are rarely... Uh, in that state willing to vote for African-American candidates. I believe Obama, when he ran in 2008, he only got about 11% of the white vote, the least amount of white support of any state in the country. So that tells you the mindset of Alabamians uh, who are in the white community as it relates to black candidates. This Supreme Court ruling could, in fact, accelerate more vote suppressive maps that would eliminate the ability for African-Americans to elect candidates of, of their choice in each of the congressional districts across the South. A very important point, the idea, the reality of technology. It's not like you have to have Lewis and Clark out there by hand drawing as cartographers, right? You have the idea of being able to have this te with technical innovation, but also it does speak to this issue that you both point out, Rick Hassan and Derek Johnson, about this idea, this fallacy. I mean, does it sound a lot like, I'm sorry, the will of the people or decisions are on a timeline that reminds me of what Senator Mitch McConnell did as it related to being cl too close to an election as it related to a Supreme Court nominee. Passed his prologue yet again. Rick Hassan, Derek Johnson, thank you for your time. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. 
Look, the gerrymandering fight, it isn't the only battle for control here, right? We, you can imagine that there are a lot of different brawls, so to speak, happening. And the big lie is a fight that is still tearing the country apart. Up next, where things stand for former President Trump, from the January 6th committee to accusations of destroying documents to boxes stashed at Mar-a-Lago to taping documents back together? That's in a moment. There are new questions tonight over whether former President Trump violated the Presidential Records Act, not just because of his well-known habit of ripping up documents, but there are new revelations, first reported by the Washington Post, that the National Archives had to retrieve 15 boxes worth, 15 boxes of White House records from his Mar-a-Lago resort just last month. Now, Trump's advisors say that the boxes are full of personal mementos, like Trump's so-called love letters from North Korea's Kim Jong-un. But under that law, that's for the National Archive to review. And it should have been handed over at the end of Trump's tenure, which I remind people is over a year ago. Now, we don't actually know if any of these records are, are damaged. And as we've reported, Trump staffers had to regularly tape his shredded documents back together, which every time I think about that, the actual taping of documents back together, you think you're watching some sort of a comedy special or some spoof on what happens actually in the White House. And you ask the question, I mean, shouldn't Trump have known better? After all, he did, if you remember, he went after Speaker Nancy Pelosi for, well, this moment. Remember this? Ripping up his State of the Union speech. I thought it was a terrible thing when she ripped up the speech. First of all, it's an official document. You're not allowed. It's illegal what she did. She broke the law. Broke the law. Well, interesting point, and that might not have aged very well. But also, who could forget all the diatribes against what Hillary Clinton was alleged to have done as well? Remember this? After her private server was revealed last March, her staff deleted all the emails and wiped it clean. People who have nothing to hide don't bleach. Nobody's ever heard of it. Don't bleach their emails or destroy evidence to keep it from being publicly archived as required under federal law. Now that's interesting. And it begs the question of what could this mean for the former president now? I want to bring in Mary McCord, who was the acting head of the Justice Department's National Security Division during the Obama administration. It's great to see you, Mary McCord, especially on a night like this. Well, first, let me just begin by asking this, though. Part of what Trump said was the idea of one bleaching or trying to shield evidence of wrongdoing in some respects. One could argue, and certainly he will argue, that he wasn't trying to shield wrongdoing or even evidence in a criminal sense. He was taking personal mementos. Is that enough to sort of go around the requirements of the Presidential Records Act? Well, I think 
as you indicated uh, in your opening, Laura, the, it's really up to the archivist to determine what is a presidential record and what is a personal record. So the assumption essentially is, is that what you uh, receive or create at the White House during your uh, term as president will be reviewed by the archivist and those that are personal records will be released to you and those that are presidential records are actually the property of the United States, of the archivist, not your own personal property. So we don't know yet what is in those 15 boxes. The archivist will be reviewing those. There may be things in there that are personal records. There probably are many things in there that are presidential records. In fact, the fact that they're sending them back suggests that even his own attorneys believe they're presidential records. And there may be things in those boxes that are responsive to the House Select Committee's request for documents relevant to its uh, investigation. You're right. We don't know everything that's in there, but I suspect the lawyers wouldn't have handed back snow globes, right, as part of what they're handing in to the National Archives. And a bit of part of me thinks to myself about this idea of what the American people must be thinking about of presidential records and the idea of, are you to suggest that every single piece of paper that the president of the United States over the course of four years touches, draft speeches and the like, maybe a post-it note, maybe a conversation that's handed out, a printout of any kind, that, that that is something that is obviously and always retained, like it's a Library of Congress document? Is that what's thought to happen? Or is there some discretion on the part of the president of the United States to determine what is significant enough to even be included in a potential archive? The the act is quite broad and, you know, really any it's not just documents. It does include works of art and things like that that are received in the court, received or produced um, in the course of the president carrying out his functions. That could be his constitutional functions, also his ceremonial functions. Those are our, all presidential records. So there can be things like personal diaries about personal things that aren't related to the president's constitutional responsibilities or ceremonial responsibilities that would be personal records. And there is some exceptions within the act for things that just have, sort of have no value, but that should be for the archivist to determine. And part of the uh, reason that the that the law is so broad is because it, it really is important for historical purposes and for accountability purposes to have the record of really what took place um, in the White House uh, you know, involving the president of the United States and those who act on his behalf in him in his carrying out his duties under the Constitution and his other responsibilities as president. You mentioned the accountability factor. I just want to just have the connective tissue here because obviously you have the January 6th committee. The reason the, Ar the National Archives are handing documents over is in part because of that request of the committee. You also have got, you know, what's mm -hmm. happening in Fulton County and discussions around the big lie and the anatomy of the big lie as it may have led to, of course, January 6th. Um, are, are these documents and things that you anticipate each of these different entities looking at and viewing with an eye towards either accountability, let alone DOJ, either accountability or understanding the role that these documents may have played in what happened on January 6th or even the big lie. So, you know, I think it, it sounds like the archivist has been dealing with the president's lawyers for some time now, many months, uh, maybe maybe even before the House Select Committee resolution, you know, even started the, com the, the committee's investigation. So I think they were doing it originally just because they realized 15 boxes of presidential records had gone to Mar-a-Lago and should not have gone there. Now, of course, there, it's certainly possible that there are documents or other materials in those boxes that, again, are part uh, of what the 
is relevant and what is requested by the House Select Committee. Committee. It could be other documents that would be eventually of use and requested or subpoenaed by um, the Fulton County prosecutor or other um, governmental entities in the course of their statutorily or otherwise authorized investigations. So I think, you know, to go back to your very first question about, you know, sort of violating the Presidential Records Act, I mean, I think one of the things that the archivists will be doing, of course, when when they go through these materials is see if there are things responsive to the House uh, Select Committee's request. And then I think it'll be up to investigators to determine, is there anything, if uh, just assuming for a minute, we don't, no, and, and I don't want to really speculate, but if there were an, a lot of responsive documents relevant either to the attack on the Capitol or the efforts to overturn the results of the election or to pressure uh, Secretary of State Raffensperger in Georgia or anything like that, I think that that, you know, if there are those types of records, then investigators will want to look into this question of sure. were they willfully concealed by taking them to Mar-a-Lago? Mar and then you would get into questions about whether there were violations in that willful concealing. But we're, way, you know, we're far away from that at this point. Mary, it seems to always come back to intent, which is obviously the hurdle that needs to be proven in so many respects. Mary McCord, thank you so much. Thank you for having me, Laura. You know, important new information tonight after the police killing of another black man in Minneapolis. This time, it happened as a result of a no-knock warrant. Reporter Omar Jimenez is closely following the case and updates us. That's next. So tonight, we know who the Minneapolis police SWAT team went looking for when they shot and killed a black man in his own home who had committed no crime. The answer hits close to home for the family of Amir Locke one week after his death. But they say it shouldn't take the focus off their loss, one they call the result of a dangerous technique that they say must be banned. CNN's Omar Jimenez is in Minneapolis with the new revelations and a warning You'll see police body cam video in this story that is disturbing. They were looking in the right apartment, but they found the wrong person when Amir Locke was shot and killed by police. They were looking for his cousin, 17-year-old Makai Speed, who was charged Tuesday in the murder of a man named Otis Elder in nearby St. Paul about a month earlier, court documents show. They also show investigators tracked the allegedly stolen car they say was used as a getaway vehicle from the shooting to a Minneapolis apartment complex. The St. Paul and Minneapolis Police Departments had search warrants that authorized the search of three apartments at the Bolero Flats. In one of them was Locke, asleep on the couch. As he appeared to wake up, he's seen with a gun and police shoot. Locke was killed. His name wasn't listed on the search warrant police and his attorneys say. Everyone from top to bottom has blame there. The decision not to actually implement a, a ban on no-knock warrants, the decisions of the Minneapolis police officials and officers involved in continuing to seek no-knock warrants. In 2020, Minneapolis police were executing roughly 139 no-knock warrants per year, according to the city. In November that year, the city updated its no-knock policy, saying... MPD officers will be required to announce their presence and purpose prior to entry, outside of exigent circumstances like a hostage situation or other imminent threats. In the following months leading up to an election, 
Mayor Jacob Fry was criticized as giving the impression he completely banned the practice. He acknowledged there could have been more nuance. As more and more people and outside groups began weighing in, language became more casual, uh, including my own, uh, which did not uh, reflect the necessary precision or nuance. Uh, and I own that. My language and what we're what we're saying is certainly in longer form honored the the spirit of this policy change. In, but but there were instances when it did not. Recently, Fry moved the city to a temporary moratorium of no knock warrants, though they're still allowed in situations of imminent risk and with the approval of the chief. But Locke's family wants a permanent ban, and their attorneys say that's the only thing that's going to solve this. What do you feel needs to be implemented to to prevent? this from happening ever again. We need a flat out moratorium and ban on no-knock warrants in real life when exigent circumstances arise. The law already provides for that. This concept of a a no-knock warrant under even emergency situations still seems ridiculous. The no-knock policy also has some gun advocacy groups concerned, including the Minnesota Gun Owners Caucus, especially as Locke's family and attorneys say he was in legal possession of his gun. Shortly after the shooting, the caucus called his death completely avoidable, and Mr. Locke did what many of us might do in the same confusing circumstances. He reached for a legal means of self-defense while he sought to understand what was happening. Protests are now calling for the familiar chance of justice in the Twin Cities for more than just a prosecution of an officer, but a change in policy. Now, Mayor Fry has said they're currently looking into their no-knock policy, potentially to take it further. It's also what state investigators are looking at to determine whether proper policy and procedure was followed here by Minneapolis police. The policy at the time was that officers must announce themselves before entry unless there is an imminent risk. What that imminent risk was or wasn't determined by supervisors is what's being looked at, along with whether these officers properly announced themselves before crossing the threshold into this apartment. Laura? Omar Jimenez, excellent reporting as always. Thank you. We're going to take this revised debate on, revived debate on no-knock warrants to two people with very valuable perspectives that I really want you to hear. One of them was mentioned in Omar's report. He's the vice president of the Gun Owners Caucus in Minnesota that's calling for an independent investigation of this tragedy. We also have former Philly Police Commissioner Charles Ramsey on whether police officers can, well, effectively do their jobs without no-knock warrants in play. A lot to consider up next. While the police shooting death of Amir Locke has one gun rights organization weighing in. No, it's not the NRA. The Minnesota Gun Owners Caucus released this statement. The tragic circumstances of Mr. Locke's death were completely avoidable. It's yet another example where a no-knock warrant has resulted in the death of an innocent person. 
Joining me now is Rob Doerr, the vice president of that very organization, and Charles Ramsey, former Philadelphia police commissioner. I'm glad to have you both. You offer such different perspectives, and I think it's valuable to have both of them. I, I want to begin with you, Rob, because I got to tell you, I'm from Minnesota, and one of the things that has always bothered me in terms of obvious, the obvious tragedies, but it's also the silence from organizations that claim to speak on behalf of lawful gun owners. I remember when Philando Castile was killed um, back in 2016 another lawful gun owner. Your organization actually, which was founded in 2015, released a statement even in support of the idea about lawful gun ownership then. But I wonder initially, why do you think there is the silence from other organizations that proclaim similar viewpoints about Second Amendment rights, but this is the category where silence results? Yeah, I think it's difficult for organizations to take a, a bold stance, uh, especially if it's something that is may cause division among their membership. And I, I can't speak for other organizations, but I, I think our we've built a culture around our, our organization, our members and our supporters expect us to do the right thing and to always speak on behalf of lawful gun ownership and in defense of the Second Amendment. You know, to be fair, I'm talking about the NRA, and, and they they claim that it didn't release, for example, a statement about um, in defense of Philando Castile because of, they say, the presence of marijuana in his car and in his system. That's what they reportedly have said about this issue, whether it's indeed true or not. But I, I do wonder about this issue. Do you, and I'll stay with you for a second here, so do you support a ban on no-knock warrants? Then it seems quite clear, as you've been advocating, that it was completely avoidable. Do you support a ban on no-knock warrants? You know, I think we need to take a hard look on it. Uh, we, you know, the city of St. Paul right next door is manages has managed to do their job for the last five years without using a single no-knock warrant. They face the same dangers, the same uh, population uh, types, the same crimes, yet they don't use any, and Minneapolis uses between 100 and 200 a year. But at the end of the day, if we have to choose between having no-knock warrants eliminated or having law-abiding innocent citizens killed so that police can recover evidence in the execution of a search warrant, we'll go, we'll err on the side of the citizen and just suggest that no no-knock warrant should be used anymore. Let me bring you in here, Chief Ramsey, because, of course, you have extraordinary experience in this field, and I suspect you have a particular take, because certainly um, some could be dismissive of the notion of banning no-knock warrants as naive in how things actually happen in terms of the execution of warrants. But I wonder if that assessment of naivete is actually one that is not accurate. Do you think that officers could really do their jobs and not have no-knock warrants as a viable option? What do you think? Well, I don't think there should be an outright ban, but I do think there needs to be a very high bar set. And those kinds of warrants ought to be approved by the court beforehand. So um, I've haven't always been a police chief. I spent a lot of time working in narcotics back when I was in the Chicago Police Department, and I participated in the execution of hundreds of search warrants. And very rarely did we go the no-knock route. It was knock and announce. So when I heard the number of 139 in Minneapolis, I thought that was very high in terms of the number of no-knock warrants. But there are some high-risk warrants where Perhaps no knock would be the best approach in trying to execute the warrant safely and be able to apprehend the individual without that person being harmed either. So an outright ban would be something that I would not be in favor of, but I do think there has to be some very tight restrictions placed on it. 
I mean, if you watch the footage here, and I'm sure you've all, you've both seen it, and obviously you've issued a statement, Bob, about this, and you have sort of seen it as well. When you look at it, I mean, does it appear to you that what you saw was police following the appropriate protocol for even an available no-knock warrant? And if not, do you think if they had followed the protocol precisely, that there is just, unfortunately, the callous view of collateral damage being the result? I mean, I, I hate to even phrase it that way because a human life was lost. But in terms of thinking about the ways in which, about bans and how they would be applied, is even a proper protocol following officer at risk for having the same result? Well, I watched the uh, execution of the warrant a couple times. They used a key to get in. They probably had a landlord or someone give them a key once they showed them the warrant. And as soon as they opened the door, they announced themselves as police officers. But the individual, Mr. Locke, was asleep. And we all know when you're asleep and you wake up suddenly, you, you really don't uh, uh, know what's going on necessarily. He was armed. He did have a gun. What I saw in the video, I didn't see anything that violated training or anything like that. This is unfortunate. It is a tragedy. There's absolutely no question about it. Uh, I wish it had never happened. I'm sure everybody wishes that it never happened. But I didn't see any direct violation, not based on what I could see. Now, we don't have all the angles from all the different body cameras, especially the individual that actually fired the shot to see the position of Mr. Locke at the time with the gun uh, in his hand to know whether or not the uh, the threat was immediate or not. But not seeing that, uh, it's very difficult to judge, but that'll all be part of the investigation. And my understanding, the state AG is going to be involved in the investigation. Rob Dorr, Charles, I wish we had more time together, but I, I do note, Rob, um, the idea of being consistent and the idea of the what you stand for in terms of the Second Amendment and having it apply to instances like this, I think will go a long way to really evaluating no-knock warrants. Thank you for your time, both of you. Thank you. Thank you. You know, we'll turn to a First Amendment fight in just a moment. I'm talking about Sarah Palin and her defamation lawsuit against the New York Times how the legal case could have some of Palin's own supporters hoping she doesn't win. I'll tell you why next. There's new testimony in the defamation trial of Sarah Palin versus the New York Times. The Times' former editorial page editor today taking partial blame for the 2017 editorial at issue that falsely linked her political action committee to the 2011 shooting of Congresswoman Gabby Giffords. Quote, this is my fault, right? I wrote those sentences and I'm not looking to shift the blame to anyone else. So I just want to say that. But yeah, I mean, this is why we send playback to writers, because they're the ones who reported the story. Constitutional law and media attorney Theodore Boutros joins me now. In full disclosure, Mr. Boutros has represented CNN in legal matters before. Good to see you, Theodore, on these issues. Ted, excuse me, in particular, I, I do wonder, first of all, this is the first libel case against the Times to go to trial in, what, 20 years? Usually it's resolved before even a jury. Here we are in a full-blown trial. What makes this case so different? These cases do, Laura, usually get dismissed based on First Amendment grounds. I think it's been, you know, maybe even 50 years since the New York Times has gone to trial. And so it really is unusual. There are a couple of twists and turns in this case. 
But you are absolutely right that, right that Mr. Bennett was a very good witness today, very contrite, very straightforward. Uh, it, they, he ma- they made a mistake. And the First Amendment protects that. It only imposes liability where a public figure sues where there's actual malice. And there's just no way Ms. Palin is going to prove that. On that notion of actual malice, of course, it really, it really um, makes you assume that the person has a higher standard than, say, the average person. If you're a public figure, there has to be actual malice shown because the assumption is you have thrust yourself into the public limelight. Therefore, you don't have the same benefits of the everyday person. In terms of that actual malice standard, though, might this case present an opportunity for this to be revisited? I mean, you've got Supreme Court justices who have wanted to reassess that standard in the past. Is this the vehicle now? Sarah Palin is arguing that the, the New York Times versus Sullivan, the, the famous case that established the actual malice principle, should be overturned. Other parties are making the same argument. It's a very dangerous time for freedom of the press and for the American people who want to get information about powerful figures like Sarah Palin and others, uh, with justices, at least two, saying they'd be willing to, to reconsider it. So that's in play in this case and in other cases. It's very dangerous for journalists across the the ideological spectrum. Now, of course, it means it's a higher standard, but Ted, let me ask you this. It's dangerous for journalists, but it's also dangerous for those who are the subject of their actual reporting, right? Is there something that can be done for those who say, look, maybe the bar is high, but maybe it's too high. I am wronged as a, as a person. And why should journalists have sort of a free pass? What do you say to that? Well, the actual malice standard in the First Amendment doesn't just protect journalists. It protects everyone. And the Supreme Court in the New York Times versus Sullivan case in 1964 said, in a democracy, we want open, caustic, vehement, sometimes nasty debate to flourish, to be a check on the government, to be a check on public figures. Uh, The New York Times standard, though, doesn't bar all libel suits. So a private person, can, can bring a case uh, and, and doesn't have to prove actual malice. A public figure like Ms. Palin, if she could prove that the New York Times intentionally made a false statement about her, she'd have a case, but she can't prove it here. They corrected it very quickly. It's an extremely important principle to our democracy. Yeah. It's going to be interesting to see how it plays out. I think Ms. Palin's going to lose. We'll soon see. Ted Boutros, thank you so much. Good hearing from you. We'll be right back. Thanks for watching. I'll be back tomorrow night. Don Lemon Tonight starts right now. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.